Hi, everyone. Welcome to Office Hours. If you're watching on YouTube, you can find out more about what we do at officehours.global. Our first hour is general discussion about media and digital production. Our second hour uh, is usually something we want to spend a little bit more time on. And today we have Simon Passmore, a composer who has done some amazing compositions inside of Logic. And so I saw what he was doing and I was like, you got to come on, talk to us about how you approach that. This is a classically trained artist, uh, musician that has uh, really taken full advantage of and really building an inspiring uh, MIDI-based um, compositions for, um, within Logic and kind of opened my eyes to what might be possible there. So, uh, so we're going to bring him on, answer your questions in the second hour. All right, let's go ahead and jump into the questions. What do we have, Bill? Joaquin Mattis in Imperial Valley, California, starts us off today with uh, asking any predictions and or hopes for what's going to be announced on Blackmagic Design's ATEM switchers and camera update event today, which is actually tomorrow. I think there was a typo there. Go ahead, John. It's tomorrow. I want to see a 4K ATEM switcher that has SDI and HDMI both in it with the ability to, to have video in their, in, this, in their storage, their media storage. And yeah, then... I an update to the what's the box camera called the ultra studio the little box camera oh that yeah hasn't been the, updated. Ultra, the, the micro studio, micro micro studio yeah that's what i'm hoping for yeah i really hope we see a micro studio obviously things in cameras that we'd love to see would be probably a ptz version <laughs> that were there but even just an update to the micro cinema would be enough you know to, to make that actually worth it um i think that uh, there's a lot of interest in whether we're going to see some of the cameras that have come out, uh, the last cameras that in the last update had Ethernet in them. <laughs> so so it'd be really interesting to see a switcher that had Ethernet in it as well, because theoretically, the switcher would not have a bunch of ports on the outside. It would just have one Ethernet and and pass it in or a couple Ethernets or, or something else that's there. So uh, it could be a really interesting possibility given that some of the cameras have that. Um, I don't expect that to be a NDI solution. I, th I expect that to be a most likely a black magic solution <laughs> that is that you know they don't really need to interact with other people's ecosystems and so we'll see if that uh, if that actually uh, happens uh, go ahead courtney i'd like to see him add a second media player and a second dve to the uh, mini to the uh, <clears throat> that would make it much more useful and just eight gigs of ram in there for media storage would be great flash ram that is a uh, permanent that doesn't disappear every time you turn it off would be wonderful I would love, and I, I don't think this is going to happen, so this is more of a pipe dream of things that would make me warm and fuzzy, would be a, a NVMe slot. <laughs> like just don't stop trying to put in storage. Just put, give me an NVMe slot that is at the bottom. I open it up. I put four terabytes in, two terabytes in, whatever I want. I, I pop it into the bottom. I close it back up, and I have all the storage that I want You know, for any given piece. I think it would revolutionize the switchers. Uh, go ahead, Bill. Yeah, that'd be interesting. In fact, to have local recording on the cameras itself, if they could put yep. some sort of high high speed port, be fabulous. Uh, what I hope they don't do, and I'm sure they won't, is continue the race for just more resolution raw. Going to uh, 12K was, I think, a little unusual, and I don't think there's a lot of people who have uh, adopted that because I think we've got enough resolution now. Somebody was saying you don't want more pixels; you want better pixels and better color science and stuff like that to really get excellent imagery out of these things. And I'm in support of that. Yeah. The biggest, my biggest complaint about the 12K is the inability to capture it at a low compression rate uh, because there's nothing to connect to the camera that can do that. That has been the biggest problem. 12K has its advantages because even if you're doing a 4K production, 
taking capturing a 12k image and and using it as a super sample to bring it down to 4k can make it ultra smooth get rid of all the grain all the interaction there's a lot of power to it even if you're going to 8k 6k 4k 2k that that massive oversampling is great the problem is is that if i have to heavily compress it to get to that i lose what i was getting on the way in and so it just it, i don't save it so the the, the super high speed output that we thought would come with the 12k hasn't really materialized and so we're, we're caught with the io speed that's going in and out of the camera which has been really a, a a huge limiter to what we can do with that camera as someone who owns three of them and we also gave up the ability to shade them <laughs> not that i'm bitter uh, mitchell yeah plus one on the media player at least five seconds would be wonderful to have that and um, maybe a watch party tomorrow and i have gaff down my credit card just in case <laughs> yeah, I um, I I, I have um, I blocked it out so ten to eleven, at least ten to eleven. If it goes long, I won't be able to watch longer. I have an eleven o'clock meeting, but uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna go ahead and watch it in after hours. We'll set up a room and uh, we'll have a little watch party uh, if people want to join us. So that'll be tomorrow at ten a.m. Pacific Standard Time. Uh, go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, I, I think uh, I'm gonna comment on the twelve K issue. The uh, I don't think we need more resolution. They were premature with their 12K, and I think they did it just for marketing uh, notice. And uh, even if you have a resolution of 12K that you're going to squeeze down to 4K, your lenses have to be a lot better to resolve that kind of imagery, and the lens is going to cost you you know, 10 times what the 12K camera costs uh, to have that kind of resolution in the lens. So corner to you, corner. Uh, yeah, I mean, so... The 12K, I mean, if you have a, if you have a lens that would work on a, like a Sony, let's say, I mean, you know, you, you would, it's still, I mean, most still, still lenses and some of the stuff will, will, will do a pretty good job of that. The main thing is, is you get rid of a lot of any kind of grain if you had a low compression rate. So if at 12K, I still think you'd see advantages to it. You know, we've done a lot where we've gone from 8K to 2K or 8K to 4K or 4K to 2K. And what we end up with are very silky smooth images that we get out of it that are very sharp. It also means that we can apply sharpening at 12K and then reduce it after that. And that will also resolve much better than applying sharpening at the native resolution that we're working at. Um, next question. Next one comes to us from James Babbitt in San Diego. And James says, what are the best ways to convert a spoken word MP3 file into a text file other than making a manual transcription? Are there new methods using AI? Go ahead, Courtney. Uh, I found a place online called Flixier. Let's look at their website, and here's the pricing for it. For it's free to uh, export. Uh, you load up uh, an audio file and accepts all types of audio files. Ten minutes a month is free, and then they have a pro version it goes up for a hundred minutes a month, and so on. Uh, that will convert any audio file to a transcribed text file. So that's one way to do it uh, without live transcription, and it uses um, AI to do the translation. Go, Jeffrey. Yeah, there's several different ones. My favorite one is otter.ai. Uh, it's been around for a few years now, and the best part is I, I used it with my phone. Uh, I put it on a table while somebody was speaking. I was getting the full transcription. You can upload files, transcribe. It can tell between different speakers. So you can say that speaker one is Joe and speaker two is Fred, and then it'll actually kick, I think it color codes it and also uh, puts the name in there. Other than that, there's other some other apps uh, like Speak AI, 
um, let's see, Fireflies. There's one called Nova. I always love it when a company calls themselves Nova. And uh, that's actually an editor. So, uh, and of course, you have, if you have Adobe products, you can use podcast.adobe.com. And that was, uh, I can't remember what their code name was on it, but you basically put in the file, you can actually edit the uh, audio as well, which is really nice. And then uh, there's a couple that are that do uh, a little bit of hybrid, like uh, verbit.ai is the name of it. And uh, it uh, you can hire somebody to, they'll transcribe, and then you can hire somebody to actually correct the problems with the AI transcription. Hey, go ahead, John. If you search for F Felipe Baez on YouTube, our own Felipe from Office Hours, he did a whole episode on Whisper. Whisper's made by the people that created ChatGPT. Whisper is their is their media to text program. It's absolutely stunning, and and he'll help you out if you because it's not a product yet. You have to compile it yourself. He's done that and run it through this. The uh, the results are stunning. You go, Bill. And if you're a video editor, you may have this built in or at least available as a uh, workflow extension in things like Final Cut Pro. I think Premiere has the same thing. You can take something directly off your timeline, send it up to the cloud, and it'll do that audio to text translation for you. Send it back as captions or as a straight text file. Yeah. Um, yeah. And Whisp Mac Whisper is actually available and it is compiled and it's like 15 bucks and then it has unlimited translation uh, and it's getting updated relatively often. Um, so I think there, there was an update a couple of days ago. So that that is, uh, you know, one of the solutions. Um, yeah, as as um, was stated, I, you know, Simon Says is great because it fits. It's actually embedded in your in Final Cut as an extension. So you sit there and go out and it comes right back in and just applies it to what needs to be done there. Um, Descript is another one that is very popular where it will convert all that to text and you can edit it again. And you can do the same thing with Simon Says. Um, so a lot of these will let you, you know, edit the video through that process as well. So there's a there's a couple of them to, to, to look at there. But yeah, a lot of, lot of options and it's going to go from being expensive to nearly free. Um, you know, I don't think, I think that, you know, within two years, there won't be any, I, I don't think within two years there'll be a reason to use a human for most things. You know, in in this, this is one of those things that's just going to get disrupted completely because it's you know the the machine. This is something a machine happens to be really good at. Um, so it, it'll be really interesting to see how fast this goes because we're no longer trying to connect it to libraries. The AI is just figuring that out and contextually sorting that out. Um, it's it's really powerful. Now, next question. Frojan Banwell here in San Diego, California, says local San Diego evening newscast, not for the first time, they have a video of the downtown skyline behind them bouncing from the wind. Is it just me or is this bad practice? Go ahead, Bill. Well, this is because they have a webcam somewhere and that's one of their takeable sources in the control room. And if it's up on top of a building where it has a pretty skyline shot, then it's affected by the atmosphere. I don't think they're making a choice to do this. They're just cutting to the shot, and the shot is being affected by the fact that there is wind locally. Probably not the best time to take that shot, but I suspect that's what's happening. Good, Courtney. Well, they could always just grab a freeze frame from it if the TD was on his you know, on point, but they, uh, you know, it gives them something to talk about since they do weather as well, so they can comment on how the how the camera is shaking from all the wind, and that brings them, and that takes us to weather, right? Take it away, man. Yeah. So the uh, we work with these cameras a lot, and or I, I have in the past. Um, so there's a couple things. There are times there are certain um, networks and and so on and so forth that always want to live. Uh, they want it to be live, but they don't have to be in the same place. So a lot of times they take someone and they key them over top of a live and they decided that that was okay. 
um, so that as long as both feeds are alive, they are live from that location. If one feed is not, um, then it's not considered a, a live a live uh, hit. And so um, this this is a big deal in the EU, and it's a big deal um, in for some of the networks. And so they have to provide that feed. Um, now, a lot of those feeds, um, if they're a major feed, that camera gets protected. So it's a broadcast you know, camera, typically some kind of PTZ, and it's put into something that goes around it that's going to absorb all of that wind. And obviously, they haven't done that in San Diego. So, um, so a lot, so, and probably 99% of the time or 95% of the time, it works just fine. Um, it's probably, you know, it's it, sometimes they're little security cameras. Um, uh, they are rarely, I mean, they, they usually are some version of an SDI camera just because they have to get it back to the transport to return it back to us. It, they started off as web cameras, but most of them are not now because they need control over that camera and it's a little bit more complex than, than what it needs there. But, um, but the main thing is the housing. So the housing has to be disconnected from the camera. The camera's mounted inside of that. Typically, again, it's a PTZ camera. Um, both, uh, Canon makes them all, all weather ones that are pretty popular. Um, and then they, they put it into a housing and usually that housing goes out as far as they can without actually um, getting into the camera shot, depending on what that focal length is. And that oftentimes protects um, that process. Uh, but but it, it can be done, but it is a lot more infrastructure to make it so that it's 100% not going to shake. Um, but you'll see that if you see all the behind the shots, any aerial shot from of the White House um, is done at a building, I think it's 16th and I, <laughs> you know, the, the, the high shot. And it's just provided to all the networks have the same shot that they can use to put behind them. Uh, and that's a pull shot, a uh, pull, uh, you know, uh, pull feed. Next question. Next one comes from Bo Cordelin, Charleston, South Carolina. If I wanted to go wireless with my Zoom in-ear headphones, is there a decent sub 400 US dollar solution? I think that the probably the two that I would look at are the um, the, DG, the DGI um, solution that you, you usually would use with a mic, um, or I would use the um, the the Rode Goes. Um, I've used the Rode Goes a lot. I don't have the DGI ones, but they, a lot of people say they work better. Um, and so those are sub four hundred dollars, and you just reverse the instead of putting a mic into it, you kind of reverse the the. the and I've used these with the Goes all the time where I put the Mac output into the Go, um, just the headphone output, you've turned it really low. <laughs> and uh, and I can hear um, I can hear it perfectly clear and I can walk around. Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, I have the DJIs and DJI now makes a single transmitter version that's like under books cheaper. So you could just get that and uh, make a padded cable, I would suggest, rather than trying to turn your headphone output down. Is, uh, put a, resist, a little resistor pad in a cable or find a padded cable that goes mm -hmm. from line to mic uh, in a mini uh, mini to mini type male mini to male mini, and I think they're out there. You can actually find them that are designed to pad down headphone to microphone levels. Here you go, Jeffrey. So, uh, well, Bluetooth. I'm using the uh, Bone in ear conductions. Those are those work really well. I think he's looking to use as a current headset. So he's got an eighth inch jack. So it's yeah. the question is, you know, what do you plug that into? That's that's where this comes in. Uh, so I have this is the X Vive. This is also a uh, two point four gigahertz wireless uh, system. Uh, this is what you'd have to figure out how to convert this. They do come with a quarter inch uh, adapter when you get the transmitter, uh, but then you put your headphone in this. It only does mono. So if you're looking for a stereo feed, this won't work. But if you're just looking for mono, this is perfect. 
Yeah, and, and if you want to go completely over the top, um, just remember that the Shure Microflex has both a mic input as well as a as an audio return. So if you can find one or someone's got one laying around, it might be a little expensive to do that with. It's not sub $400, but it'll work great. <laughs> next question. James Babbitt comes up next from San Diego on the Mac and on iOS devices. The Shazam app recognizes music. What technology does it use? I have decided that this should be the first video that we that we do that we do. I was like, I, I wonder how that actually works. And so um, we should do a video about this for for YouTube and put it on our channel because I I looked through a, a couple of them um, just to see how they would how they would define it. I'm going to give you my be best understanding of how this works, but I think we're going to dig into this a little bit more. Um, but basically, you know, what it needs to do is it needs to simplify what it's looking at. Um, so it's not, it can't look at the whole, it can't look at the whole waveform and try to figure out what's going on. So if you look at the waveform that, that you know, that's going on audio waveform, what it does is it says, I'm going to select a series of frequencies that are here, these ranges. And then, because um, I don't, these are the parts that make a difference. This is, I can identify a song knowing what's in those areas. Still too much data within those frequencies. And so it runs a, what's called a fast Fourier transform to, um, to you know basically build a coefficient so that so in in those frequencies and so it might say this is 33 and this is 51 and this is 93 and this is 140 whatever so um, it builds these coefficients and and that over time it builds a fingerprint and so that builds a fingerprint over time of that of that piece that's much simpler than what it had there it might you know it's it might have um, you know and just a, you know just a very small samples it has a very small um, a number of numbers that it has in an array that it can look at there and then what it has to do is it can oftentimes look at what what those values are in time uh, in between time so it says i can see that these two things are are the same and then that matches a million songs and I, and then these things are similar and that matches 10,000 songs and then this is and this is all happening very very fast <laughs> you know so so it and it basically you know kind of builds a pyramid and just goes right to this fingerprint matches these four or five songs and then it looks at a little bit more and it says this fingerprint matches this song and and all of that while it sounds really um, you know, complex um, is a happens very all happens very quickly, um, and it can it can um, figure that out because it's simplified it into that hash. You know that there's that hash that has been built um, by those um, by that analysis across a series of frequencies, um, and it's a it's a it's a really fascinating um, process on on how it kind of figured that out, and it made them uh, for four hundred million dollars <laughs> when they sold it to Apple. Uh, go ahead, Bill. That was, I think, a fascinating explanation, and it got me uh, more clarity. The first time I used that, I thought it was black magic. I couldn't mm -hmm. believe that they were able, in a, that short a period of time, to most of the time identify a piece of music randomly grabbed on your phone out of the air. Pretty amazing. So thank you for that, Alex. Mm -hmm. That really helps me. I, even if it's not 100% accurate, it gives me a much better idea of what might be going on. So thanks. Yeah, absolutely, Mitchell. It's uh, equally interesting how they remove the uh, the, the nat natural sound that's in there, too, because I notice it's very accurate, even if it's low and in the background and people are talking or there's some other uh, noise there. So they have some other kind of, you know, alchemy working there to keep that stuff out. Yeah, no, absolutely. And we're going to do some more research on that. I mean, that's my that's my cursory understanding of, of how that all works. But but as I thought about it a little bit more, I was like, that would be a great video because I looked at a couple videos on YouTube. I, I couldn't I didn't have time. I saw the, the question this morning. So I just kind of skipped through them. And I was like, oh, there's a lot of leader. Anytime I see a lot of uh, leader on somebody's YouTube video, um, you know, I... I go, I should make a new video. <laughs> so 
<laughs> like, you know, like just like for those out there making YouTubes, if you, uh, you know, Jeff Bezos uh, has uh, used to say that your margin is my opportunity. And I have now looked at it as your leader is my opportunity. <laughs> so if you talk for a minute and, and don't get to the point um, or give me a bunch of stuff that I don't need, I go, I should make a new video because this is too, this is taking too long. Uh, next question. David Barton in Memphis, Tennessee. I'd like to make my own teleprompter. I have two questions. Who makes the good glass and how do you handle the camera mount? Spare parts from prompter people or something from the hardware store? Uh, yeah, go ahead, um, uh, Jeffrey. So my first, uh, the first attempt that I ever did on a teleprompter, I just basically took an Amazon box and a piece of glass, and then I took that the two-way film that you can get off of Amazon, and I put that onto the glass, and uh, that worked really well. And for the camera, I just basically got myself, well, I had a microphone stand, a, a tabletop microphone stand, which I just put a little converter on, and then I put the camera on that and use that in that way. There's many different ways. Uh, through If you go to the hardware store, a lot of different ways you can uh, create your own teleprompter very easy. Uh, and uh, I'm not sure about the high-end glass, but it really depends on how much where you're going to be putting if it's, this is in your home studio the high-end glass works of course but uh you could probably save yourself a few dollars with what the what i was suggesting uh and then uh just uh, get yourself less something like an 80 80 20 bar or anything like that yeah go ahead, uh go ahead courtney well the good glass is optical quality float glass uh that has been coated with titanium or aluminum uh at uh, 70, 30, 70% 70 transmission, 30% reflectance. And uh, our good, really good teleprompter glass also has a fluoride coating on the backside of it. So it's a first surface mirror for the metal coating on one side of the glass. And the other side of the glass has a fluoride coating, which gives it anti-reflectivity. So it, you don't get that little double reflection off the glass. And you don't get any uh, reflections back into the lens from anything that appears above the glass. Uh, so that's the good glass. We used to pay about two or three hundred dollars per piece of glass, but I found a, a place that sells. I don't think it has anti-reflective coating, but here's a here's one on Amazon that's for thirty-four dollars for teleprompter glass. It says seventy thirty uh, for thirty-four bucks. I think it's uh, twelve inch, twelve point seven inch, uh, although it's rectangular. But we had all our, all of ours made uh, custom, and the guy who made them died twenty years ago. But all of our glasses still functioning, and it works quite well, and has held up for over thirty years. Go ahead, Mitchell. Um, you also have to be uh, conscious of whether you're inside or outside, whether it's a seventy thirty or a sixty twenty. Um, Courtney 60, certainly 40. knows more about that. <laughs> what, me? Sixty sixty forty. Thematic's not my top skill. But anyhow, I know there's lots of different choices around. And yeah, the uh, reflection, like if you're looking at a bright image and it reflects onto your shirt or on your on your face, that's a problem. Yeah, go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, the other thing I didn't mention is the thickness of the glass. Ours was 90 thousandths, which is less than an eighth of an inch thick. Because the thicker the glass, the more refraction you get as the light passes through it. Because remember, you're looking through it at a 45-degree angle. Um and it's going to, you know, pass through a more portion of that glass than you would imagine just looking straight through it. So, uh, ninety thousandths. Uh, it it makes it a little more uh, fragile, uh, but you don't want to get anything thicker than, you know, window glass is normally too thick. 
Yeah. And so uh, one of the things is you can get thicker glass if you're, and sometimes we get thicker glass if we're traveling with it because it's just, it, we're just afraid it's going to break, um, you know, when we're shipping it somewhere all the time. But um, absolutely get the thinnest glass that you think you can support, especially if you're doing it at home. Uh, you can get the thin glass because you're probably not going to move it very often. Um, you can build these out. Just remember that a teleprompter is a monitor with a piece of this glass that is going at 45 degree angle. And you usually want some adjustment here so that you can aim it a little bit if you need to. But it's not more complicated. I've built these out of cardboard boxes. Like literally, I, I was in Africa and we had a, we went to somewhere that had silvered glass and I put it in there. Now, the problem with that is, is that, again, the cheaper glass is going to have, um, you know, you're taking an expensive camera, theoretically, putting it behind cheap glass. It's like putting a plastic filter on the front of your camera when you're, you know, like a lot of people use little UV filters, but you, you want an expensive one because, or not at all, because you spend a lot of money in that glass and going through something else doesn't necessarily make sense. So you want that glass to be high quality if you can. Uh, the place that I bought it in the past, when I'm figuring it out, I, do, I go to a local company. I just ask for silvered glass and I figure out what I want. I make sure that it's kind of the angle that I, I, I want it. And that'll be very inexpensive, 50 or $100. Um, and you can get that in a lot of places at a local um, location. Uh, Telepromptermirror.com is where I buy it when I know what I want. <laughs> so if I, if I, once I know what that is and I figured out the size, um, I get it from them. You can, there's a lot of definition there. They're more expensive for the size of the one that I'm building right now. It'll probably cost me $800, but it's a big one. It's like 43 inch teleprompter or whatever. So, um, so the, uh, so that's what you want to kind of look at as you go. As far as the hardware that goes in there, the one that I'm building, I'm building largely with maker pipe for the outer edges. And then I just have to figure out something. I'm building rails or getting rails that have uh, velvet on them that I'm gluing velvet down the sides of them. So when it when the glass sits, it's not sitting against metal, which makes it less likely to break. Um, and then um, so we're, you know, those rails go down at a 45 degree angle. I am using an adjustable joint inside of the maker pipe to make sure that I can move it up and down a little bit as I kind of figure that out. And then the, um, as far as the camera assemblies, that's really more grip work. Um, you can either put a tripod back there, so you can have the teleprompter be separate and its own thing, which is what I'm going to do. Um, but you can also, you know, because when you look at the prompter people stuff, you have, uh, they have it all kind of all in one or they have separated ones. I like the separated one when I'm building them myself because a lot of times I want to change things out and I don't want to mess with the teleprompter itself. Um, but it is faster to set up if you have one that's all in one piece. And so you just have to decide um, because I'm only putting it up once and it gets a lot more complicated if I start trying to build all the rigging for the camera, I'd rather be able to do that on my own. Let's go to the next question. Next question comes to us from James Babbitt in San Diego again. Which Sony cinema camera bodies have the video capabilities of the Sony FR7 cinema line pan tilt zoom camera, but with a fixed mount instead of the pan tilt zoom mount? Go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, the, uh, the cameras have a, a very broad range, starting with the FX3, which I have. But if you want to start right at, with a FR7 level quality and a fixed camera, the FX6 is exactly the same uh, lens uh, sensor, or, excuse me, sensor on there. And then from there, you can go up and improve it, the 7, the 9, mm -hmm. uh, the Venice, et cetera. Yeah, and, and we're buying, um, uh, we are... The, the kits that we're building are a mixture, and I, I know that a couple of people in this group are building, are a mixture of the FR7s and the FX6s because, as Mitchell said, they are identical sensors. Um, next question. Next one comes to us from Anthony uh, Biancella in, Brit in Baritan, 
Baritan? I haven't heard of that before. Thank you, Anthony, for bringing it to my attention. In any case, the question is, did the chapter markers you added in Final Cut Pro automatically appear in your video for YouTube? I've had to paste the chapter info into the description of YouTube video for chapters to work. And I think this has to do with what I was talking about pre-show. Yeah, what was that? Um, so yes and no. Um, what I did was I sent to the back end, this is for the final cut training I did. Uh, we were working with the office hours team behind the state, the scenes to try to get those on the website in a way that people could access chapters rather than the entire 45 minute video. It ended up, I sent a text list, basically an Excel sheet with chapter one and a description of it. And the back-end crew was able to put that into the website in a way that you can jump chapter to chapter, topic to topic. Uh, so, no, it was not done that way for YouTube specifically, but it, that's what I had to do. I did the video. I put markers in it for Final Cut. I That gave me the times and then that time information plus the description information sent in as an Excel document. They were able to do with that on the back-end for the, for the process. Yeah, and... It'll be. I'd be interested to see, you know, what where the efficiencies are. I've usually found it easier to look at the markers and type them in, <laughs> you know, into a list and then cut and paste it in than trying to get it out of Final Cut. It, you know, by the time I reformatted everything, I felt like I could have just typed it in or cut and pasted from the from the marker, depending on how many markers you have. Uh, next question. Next question comes from David Brady in New York City, living in Manhattan and parking on the street. Sometimes I forget where my car is. If I equip my car with an air tag, could I use it as a poor man's low jack? where it logs the last known location. Go ahead, Jeffrey. Uh, absolutely. Uh, and of course, you'll need an iPhone to do that. So uh, with the AirTags, like for instance, I have my keys set up and uh, I'm, it's saying that I'm about seven feet away from my keys right now. So if I, get, if I move the phone farther away, it will, uh, it'll tell me that, of course, I'm farther, I'm closer. And then there's a map. I wasn't going to show you the map, but... Uh, there's a map that shows where where your uh, keys are locating from. Keep in mind that it's basically pinging off of everybody else's iPhone. So uh, I suppose in, in New York, it'll be pretty easy to do because people will be passing by left and right. But if you're in open field, it might be a little bit harder to find your car. Yeah, go ahead, Courtney. Well, if you have an Android phone, uh, Google Maps uh, has a feature where you just uh, open it up. You hit the little... Uh, blue dot that shows your location when you park your car and then you tap save my parking and it will save the location of your car in google maps and give you a plot back to it yeah the um uh, the iphone will do that as well so you can save save you can save your parking there's a feature in there so you can use your iphone to do that or your android phone to, to find those spaces you don't need that it is nice to have the marker there so that you can uh, you know where your car is if someone took it so, so anyway, so it's not a bad idea to have a, um, an air tag in your in your car hidden somewhere. Uh, if someone, even if someone scanned it, the amount of time it would take them, they could scan to see that you have one. But the amount of time it would take them to find it when the alarms go, if, if your car has an alarm, would probably they probably just go to the next car without without one. You know, I don't think you know. Usually, you don't. You know, they you know they often say that you don't. If you're uh, if you're in the woods and and you you know anyway, you only have to be faster than the other person around you. So so the um, uh, but but in in this case, if you make your car like all those things where the arms are are you know you put arms on your car, you know the locks the the wheel and you do all the other things that are there. It's just a pa a matter of making yours a little harder than everybody else's to get into, and usually a thief is going to go somewhere else. Um, you know they're not going they're looking for lowest common you know lowest you know lowest impact, not how to 
they're not trying to reinvent the wheel. <laughs> you know, so, so, uh, so if you, I would, I would highly recommend it. Now go ahead, Jeffrey. On that same token, I have a Panasonic uh, uh, car stereo inside there. Of course, it's got Apple Car in in the, uh, in the display, and so the app that uh, that I have also will mark and locate my vehicle if I'm trying to find it. You go, Courtney. And I was just going to mention, if you are going to use an AirTag or a Tile uh, locator uh, chip, uh, put it in the window or paste, you know, disguise it and then paste it to your back window because getting out of a metal car can, it will definitely limit, limit the range of it to, for other people to talk to it. Next question. Next question comes from Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. What is IEEE and why is it important to us? Go ahead, Bill. It's a standards organization, very much like SIMTI or those kind of things. I think it stands for the Institute of Electronics and Electrical Education. Uh, but it's been around for a long time, and it sets standards. And standards are very important in growing industries and actually in even mature industries because it tells something like, here's how far apart the plug prongs need to be on this thing for every socket to use it. Uh, consistently. That's kind of where they started out, but now they deal with thousands of topics and it just helps everybody stay on the same page. Next question. Albi Lopez in San Antonio, Texas. What is the recommended way to clean teleprompter glass? Courtney? <laughs> I was, he didn't even raise his hand. I was like, I just, he, he, was, he was doing a J route. And I just threw the ball right to him. Like, he didn't around yet. Yeah, 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 go ahead, Courtney. Uh, yeah. Uh, isopropyl alcohol diluted with distilled water uh, or 50% isopropyl. Don't get rubbing alcohol because it has oil in it. Um, and uh, put that on a very soft, you know, lens tissue works good. Uh, non-abrasive uh, cloth of some sort, yeah, or microfiber cloth. But microfiber cloths sometimes leave behind microfibers on the glass. So uh, you need something that's more lint-free to clean it with. And don't rub very much. Uh, wet the, uh, you know, wet your cloth and gently dust it off. Or if I, I, I propose dusting it off mm-hmm. with a little squeeze bulb and an air blower. Uh, not not the canned air, but the squeeze bulb type that just blows little puffs of air to get little pieces of dust off without having to touch the front surface. And remember, if it has an anti-reflective coating on the back, that is probably more uh, sensitive to uh, wear and tear than the metal coating on the front. So be careful about cleaning the back if it has an anti-reflective coating. But do remember to clean the back because a lot of times when they're sitting there, they're picking up a, the the back actually picks up more dust than the front. And it's a funny thing because it'll be out of focus and you'll look at something and go, that looks a little soft. Like it's a weird, it doesn't look like it's out of focus, but it does. It kind of looks like a back focus is a little out or something. And that we've had ones that got real dirty. (laughs) So it took us a little moment while we were doing rehearsals. Like what is wrong with that image? If you've got dust bunnies on the back of your teleprompter glass, you haven't opened them up in quite a while. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. It wasn't dust bunnies. It was just, it was just like, it was just a thick, a thicker layer of dust that when we cleaned it off, the camera looked so much better. Next question. Next question comes to us from Paul, uh, Chris Widener, I'm sorry, in Lafayette, Indiana. What was the oddest thing you've built uh, for a commercial shoot? Mine is still the mini ITX Crave case in the early 2000s. Yeah, go ahead, Courtney. I worked on a commercial with a documentary uh, director who insisted, and we had a teleprompter. It was a scripted commercial for, and the talent was unknown talent. I won't mention any names, but she was not known for her brilliance. And uh, uh, 
the director insisted we had to shoot two cameras at the same time because uh, even though we had scripted stuff, she's reading off a teleprompter. So she wanted to shoot two cameras at the same time with a teleprompter, and she's supposed to be talking into the lens. Well, that's fairly difficult to get the eye line to the same on both cameras when you're speaking through a, a teleprompter. So we had to go rent a 3D rig from a company for about $10,000 for the day that mounted two area Lexes at 45-degree angles into a beam splitter, a 3D beam splitter. And then I had to mount the teleprompter beam splitter in front of that beam splitter. And so by the time we assembled this whole thing with two area Lexes and one beam splitter and a second uh, beam splitter for the teleprompter in the front, it was the size of a Volkswagen. And uh, so we did the shoot. We shot with it. We got it to work. There was like a stop and a half loss going through all the glass. And um, we did the shoot, and the director said, okay, now just uh, give me your own opinion on the product. Uh, and <laughs> the talent goes, uh can't you put the words back up there? Cause I want the words. <laughs> yeah. What a mess. Yeah. Go, go ahead, Bill. Uh, so I had a spot once for a local credit union way back in the day. This is probably 40 years ago. And um, the conceit that I wrote for the spot, and I was stupid to do it, was a dollar went a long way back when the credit union start, and they're still going today. And the reason I did that was because it was in the bicentennial, and there was a bicentennial silver dollar. So I found a silver dollar for the old uh, when the credit union had started. And so I had to figure out a way to roll a silver dollar across the frame over and over reliably. So I had to build a little channel and a stand and be able to lower or raise it to change the speed of the silver dollar rolling across the frame. And when it worked beautifully for every single take, everybody said, I can't believe you did this. <laughs> so that was in my 20s. And it was one of the things that I think started me into the industry because I was able to solve that problem on the set. Go ahead, Mitchell. We did a commercial for the athlete foot group that sells athletic footwear, and the spokesperson wanted to show a modern device for measuring feet. Now, this is what's called a Brannock device, but it's uh, also a prop. I held on to it, and uh, we were just trying to, we kind of outfitted it with special effects and things that would light and spin and do stuff on it, but um, I still have it, and if you need to have your feet measured, I can uh, take care of you here. <laughs> we had, I think the, I think that the craziest one, and of course these all happen um, really quickly. You know, it's never like one of those things that someone gives you a lot of time. So we had like a nine day turn and we had a pretty prominent actor um, who it was, they have this the, a fundraiser, I think that they do. And, but they had every day, every year they do something that's trying to uh, get you to adopt puppies, adopt from the, from the local SPCA or whatever. Anyway, and so we built this thing where this prominent uh, host actor had was waist up in, and we put AstroTurf out, you know, and um, and they were waist up in it. And then we had uh, 20 little puppies, um, and it, you know, in a little box. And we had a logo that we built on the back end of it. And so, and we had it all in a set, in any piece set in New York. <laughs> so, like, it was, like, funny. There was, like, this weird little set that we built. And we built it and tested it in our office and then packed it up and flat packed it and sent it out to, to New York and put it up. It worked great, and the and it was it was uh, the actor's wife even went into the show and said, "If you don't come home with a puppy, don't come home at all." <laughs> so so anyway, so that was that was part of it. Uh, he was a comedian, so it was it was it was fun. Um, anyway, so that, I think that was probably the uh, the goofiest thing that we built. Go ahead, Courtney. Um, 
this should strike home at, uh, on one of the only three Apple commercials that ran in the Super Bowl, I had to build this, which was a recreation of HAL uh, 9000, uh, including uh, create, recreating all the graphics uh, that were on the HAL 9000 uh, that ran in their 1999 Super Bowl ad. And uh, it's just that one shot of that prop. But uh, it took a lot of work to make it match exactly because the agency was insistent that it not be – you could not tell it from the original production. And we got very little help from uh, um, the people that produced it other than sample sample videos from the film, 2001. <laughs> um, and this is the – this is the uh, – of that shot that I was talking about. That's the wide shot of us setting it up. So it's a big NEP studio and we have just this little box – um, that was uh, that was there, yeah. So that's that that was the uh, the little box that we created. You can see the astroturf sticking out as we kind of prepped it all up, um, all for a you know half an hour little live stream. Uh, next question. Next question comes to us from Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. Again, this time he says the Insta 360 Link has proven to be the go-to webcam on the Mac, less so on the PC. What would be the runners up in order? Um. You know, I think that the, the one that we, we have used for years is the Brio. So the Brio has been the, um, the kind of the go-to that we've used for there. And I don't see that one really changing. I don't, um, it drops off from a quality perspective, in my opinion, and I bought a lot of them. It drops off pretty quickly. <laughs> yeah, go ahead, Jeffrey. Yeah, I was going to say the Brio because the Brio has this sensor in there for the Windows Hello, which will help focus, uh, find the face and focus on it a little bit better. Um, and of course, the Link doesn't even have that. Uh, you have the Obsbots, <clears throat> excuse me, if you're talking PTZ, you have the Obsbot uh, camera, which is not that great in, uh, in, in a lot of different ways. Uh, this is pretty decent in the tracking and the AI tracking, of course. But uh, if you're looking for a PTZ camera, that the best option is uh, Obsbot has this, and I can't remember the name of the device. You basically put a phone into the uh, thing, and then that's got the sensor that will move around uh, left and right, and then you can put the Brio into that uh, into that uh, device, and then you'd have uh, best of both worlds. Yeah, and uh, you know the the one that I think is designed the best is actually the the feels the best is the Dell. The Dell one feels the best. Unfortunately, its audio its video quality did not stand up to the. Uh, level of industrial design for the housing. Uh, next question. Next one comes to us from Walt Palmer in Lewes, Delaware. He says, as a rule of thumb, what is the comfortable distance between talent and a 24-inch prompter while using Mucana? Go ahead, Courtney. Depends on the eyesight of the person doing the looking. Uh, because <laughs> uh, if you have to be able to read text, small text, if you're using it just for... Uh, uh, in Teratron, and you have your computer screen up there that you may have to click on or read some smaller text on, move it as far away as you can and still be able to resolve that text with your eyesight and whether or not you're going to be wearing glasses. Because uh, remember, your glasses are going to reflect the teleprompter, and the smaller that teleprompter is in your field of view, the more narrow or more focused your eyes are going to look into the camera because it's a You'll be less likely to look off axis if you're looking at somebody that's over there on the gallery or somebody who's over there on the gallery with a 24-inch teleprompter. That's pretty large with a small lens in the middle of it. Uh, so you'll see less eye travel the further it is away. So you just have to move it till you're comfortable with it and can still read anything off and click on anything you're going to need to click on if you're using it as an interatron. 
Yeah, and the other thing to know is it depends on how you're using Makana. Makana has some other uh, some stuff you most people here don't see very often, but it has uh, a teleprompter view, so you can have it be. And then for that, we can use much smaller ones at much further away because we just put one question up at a time. It's black and white. We can flip the image inside of the software, and so there's a bunch of things that again aren't aren't usually exposed to what most of us are looking at here, but we use it a lot, and that's how we do it. We have a teleprompter view um, that is uh, that's definable. We can decide how many things are up there at a time, et cetera. Uh, next question. Chris Sabato in Albany, Oregon. Up next, I have a relatively inexpensive camera with a C-mount lens. I broke the IR filter trying to clean the sensor. Obviously, the color is all screwed up. Can I just get an IR filter for the lens? I have rarely had, I've never, I don't think I've ever put an IR filter on the lens itself. So I, I think that I would, I would probably look for a new camera once I broke the, <laughs> once I broke the filter on the sensor. Uh, I don't know if that would, um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, usually when we do that, what we're doing is we're putting a filter on the front of the lens. When we get an IR filter on the front of the lens, it's almost black. So we take the IR filter off the, the sensor and we put it on the, on the lens. And the idea is that we only see the, uh, it's usually ultraviolet actually that we, that we're looking for, but the IR, the, uh, the IR is usually something that we, when you do it that way, you're taking that that sensor off. But I think that the filter that you're putting on the front that's called an IR filter is going to be nearly black. It's not going to correct for that. It's actually going to try to get rid of every wavelength other than that um, as it goes in. So I, I don't think it's going to work the way you need it to. Um, next question. Jonathan Kearney in Liverpool in the UK says, I need an extremely lightweight and battery-powered Zoom kit for various locations. I'm using iPhone and a Shure MV88, but only have auto sound levels. Is there a very small interface that would give me adjustable gain and headphone monitoring? Go ahead, Mitchell. If you're really married to that MV88, you might try an MV7, uh, which has all of those things built into it for about $200. Uh, it has headphone monitor, USB and all the uh, the goodness you need inside of it to talk to your computer. Go, Jeffrey. The MV88 Plus uh, is a USB audio kit, so putting anything in between is is not going to happen. Uh, and I don't believe that there's any in-between app that you can put in there. The better thing is to uh, switch to something that will give you a uh, three and a half millimeter jack, uh, like a, a Movo or anything like that. Then you can use something like a Ceramonic uh, interface to put in between uh, the phone and the microphone. Go ahead, Bill. Yeah, I was going to suggest Ceramonic as well. They have that. I, I was a little confused. It says Zoom Kit, and so I thought we were talking optical, but clearly we're talking audio only. So the Ceramonics use a nine volt battery and have phantom power available, and can do that pretty well. And they have a lightning connector, so you can go into phones if that's what you're doing, or you can get them with a uh, eighth inch, uh, three point five millimeter. Yeah, we've literally built rigs that have our iPhone that you know an iPhone that is um, in like a handheld rig. And we've got a ceremonic that goes into that into that iPhone. Um, we have XLR going in. We literally have electrosonic <laughs> transmitters uh, that are there with wireless and everything else. And so, um, so it's it, that's a totally doable solution there. Next question. Eduardo Augustine in Panama says, my fly kit has an ATEM Mini Extreme ISO HDMI, and lately the HDMI fiber cables tend to lose signals. Should I change to SDI, NDI, or wireless video? What are your suggestions? 
When in production, I'd always prefer SDI just because the, the lengths that I can run, obviously you're already using, you wouldn't, NDI would be very difficult with a mini. You'd have so many converters that you'd have trouble with that. Um, and I, and again, I know a lot of people here are successful with NDI. I haven't really, I don't really use it in, I use it as monitoring. I don't use it as production um, signal. So, um, so that would be the the difference. Um, so um, yeah, I, I, I lean towards having connectors that work and wires that go long distance. And it's just, it's a lot more assured than you have with the uh, with um, with the HDMI. Go ahead, Jeffrey. Yeah, with those uh, HDMI cables, you should have an adapter that also has a USB option to it, so you can get some extra power going through those cables, and always make sure that they're running the correct direction uh, and they're not backwards. Yeah, I, I guess I would still say that S SDI is just a lot easier to buy and make, or mostly make. You know, so we we make them over long distances, and depending on the SDI cable, you can get up to about eight hundred feet. Now, I never use SDI over uh, about uh, one hundred and fifty feet. is kind of the outside edge of what I use, and when I'm using thinner cables, which I like to use a lot, sixty to seventy feet is about as far as I'll go with an SDI cable um, before I switch over to fiber. But the knowing that you're actually locking it in makes a big difference to me. Um, next question. Next question comes to us from J.J. McKenna in Santa Venetia, California. What is a good heavy-duty spinner luggage set, possibly aluminum, that could double as a chair without damaging the wheels? Are there any sets with retractable wheels? Oh, boy. That's a that's a complicated question. Um, Briggs and – what is it? Briggs and whatever makes some pretty pretty nice – Briggs and is – it, it's not Briggs and – Briggs and Riley luggage – um, is fairly indestructible when it comes down to that. Although I can't say that I've ever sat on my, uh, I don't sit on my luggage very often. Go ahead, Bill. Well, I was just taking a look through the internet when I saw this, and there's a company called Ramoa that makes some reasonably high end, like their spinner luggage thing uh, is about $1,100 plus. So I wouldn't, it wouldn't surprise me at all if they had more either really solid wheels or that. I have not used them, but mm -hmm. uh, take a look around. There may be some things at the higher end that would be good for this. Toomey makes a lot of stuff that's pretty, and if it breaks, usually they'll replace it for you. So it's a good place to test. Um, we've used those a lot. Um, and then, of course, if you if you decide you want to just go, um, you know, with a, with a Pelican case 1510, you can definitely sit on that. <laughs> so the Pelican, the, the Pelican 1510 is a carry-on. Uh, you lose a little space because of, of how it how it works, but if you're willing to commit to that, um, you can get it. It's 22 by 22 by. Um, uh, by 11 by 9, I think, which is within the range uh, for America, for U.S. The problem really is, is that everyone will want to weigh it because uh, once you get to Germany, Lufthansa, not that I'm bitter. Uh, next question. Next question comes from Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. What's the best way to assess AI from a phone using only your voice? Access, excuse me, not assess, access AI from a phone using only your voice. Go ahead, John. So I don't know if you're an iPhone guy or an Android guy, but um, there's rumblings that there's a new version of Siri that's 10x better performance than what they have now. Apple's acquired more AI companies than anybody else on the planet. I suspect we'll see some great stuff at WWDC. And then I'm sure there's going to be a connection to what do they call it? Google Assistant, Courtney, on the on the Android side. That that will be tied into Bard. So coming this year. You go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, on most Android phones, um, Anytime you click on a text entry box, it'll bring up the on-screen keyboard, and there's a little microphone in there. You just hit that, and Google uses its voice recognition to you speak to it, and it'll enter whatever you spoke into the text entry box, and just use that with regular chat GPT. 
Yeah, it's going to be really interesting to see as we move more and more towards AR as well, a lot of these things can become really important because we're really trying to get to kind of a hand, hands-free existence. So um, I think that we're going to see, and as has been stated here, it's going to be very busy this year, this year, next year, the year after that. Um, there's a lot of uh, rumors that Apple is working on being able to build, construct environments just by talking to the to the machine. <laughs> like I want something here. I want this here. I want this gear. Move that over here. Let's move that, you know, this in here. I want that to be red. I want this to be, you know, put a light up here. And so um, a lot of that conversational stuff. And as, as Bill said, they, they, they bought a lot of companies to figure this out. And it's a pretty big group of people there that are trying to figure it out. So I think that we're going to see um, a lot of those things. I think everything's in its early form. I think that the thing that's really interesting as we look at AI, and especially as we look at the ability to um, to do that, you're you're going to get to a point where I think this is what scares a lot of folks that have a lot of skills is that people who are creative are going to be able to do things without any skill. <laughs> like they are just, I have an idea and I want that idea. And what how that worked in the past was you you worked your way up in whatever way you did it and you got to be a director and that director has a bunch of people working for them. You know, like I didn't want this and I want this and I want this to go over here and I want this to go over there. And there's people that all did did the things that they were asking for. And as we move forward with AI, I think we're getting more and more into the computer will do what we ask it to do. Um, and, you know, while we're, you know, as we're getting, you know, right now we're in a very early state of that process where it's not, not particularly um, comfortable or clean. Um, and, uh, and so, but even in its early states, if you're, if, for those of us who are playing with chat GPT and playing with mid journey, it's astounding, you know, what we're creating and what we're building out and what we're doing. And we know that this is like almost, it's, it's slightly better than hello world, <laughs> you know, like, you know, um, uh, from, from where we're going to get to in the next, you know, three, four, five years. I think it's a, it's a pretty fascinating, um, uh, thing that's kind of coming together there. Uh, and you'll get these long answers when we. I have not as many questions right at the end of the hour, and we're trying to fill them out. Next question. Next one comes to us from Douglas Carmichael. Why do you think that Apple didn't make a 15-inch MacBook Pro and went with 14 and 16? He notes, I'm concerned about the ergonomics of a 14-inch MacBook Pro with my large hands versus the 15-inch I have now. Go ahead, Bill. I think it was shrinking bezels, basically. I mean, literally, I think most everything works the same way on the 15-inch that it did on the 16-inch before is because all they did was slim down the case around the display. At least that's been my experience. I I, I feel with the 16-inch, uh, I get everything that I ever had with the biggest of the laptops before. Also, at the same time, rasters were getting more dense, and most of the laptops had excellent screens. And... I even had to blow up a lot of the interfaces as this higher density raster and better screens came out just so I could see things clearly enough because in their stock configuration, type was so small. It was very clear, but it was so small that my aging eyes had more trouble with that. My travel, my travel laptop is a 2020 Intel like laptop or whatever, 14 inch. I hate it. Just, you know, I hate it. It's too small. <laughs> like it's just like I don't know who does what on on a fourteen inch. Um, I'm sure that people have found it to be useful. I can't do any production on it. 
Like I can't, like I can do keynote some of the time and I'm still angry. You know, like keynote, I just worked on a keynote slide on the way, um, a slide deck while I was on the flight home. The only thing I like about it is it fits in a little back pocket in my backpack as, as opposed to the main area. So I like that part um, that it'll fit in a place that's really small. But outside of that, I dislike everything else about that laptop. You know, I would highly recommend getting a 16-inch if you're going to actually do anything more than keynote and answer email. Um, yeah, go ahead, Chris. Feel your pain, Alex. Uh, my travel computer is a 27-inch iMac. <laughs> <laughs> but here's my question. Here's my question: is is how do you open that in the in the uh, in the in the plane? Do they let you open in the plane? Do they do they do they go? Uh, I don't want to work on the plane. <laughs> How about, you know, you're sitting at the airport, you got to check some emails. Do you just roll it out? Do you, do you find a stand for it? I have my phone it? for that stuff. I'm really working. I'm, no, I mean, it, it, it is a very interesting uh, problem because if you spend, and I understand that a lot of people do a lot of production on laptops. I get that. Um, the laptops are super powerful, but if you spend a lot of time with a lot of screen real estate in front of you, you get super spoiled super quick. And you can only alt tab or command tab so much. And sometimes you really just need to, to spread stuff out. As a matter of fact, when I used to travel to edit, uh, not only did I travel with the iMac, but I also traveled with a second display. And, right. you know, I'm just going to set up here and I'm, and I'm going to work. And typically it's for multiple day things or, you know, a right. week at a time in a hotel somewhere in wherever'sville. But uh, I can't. I just. I, I did it recently where I had some easy little edits and I did them on a laptop and I will admit um, it was a lot less stuff to set up. It was pretty nice. But and yeah, I will say yeah, this I is my, my version of, of yours is the little little case I have for my studio. So it's the same thing. I got to have a monitor on the other side, but it's just kind of like I'm just put my studio in here. And um, so let me ask you about monitors. What's your preference in terms of resolution for monitors? Yeah, I, I, I get a couple monitors. I like just 1080p monitors and I because they're cheap. 1080p? 1080p, but I get multiple ones. <laughs> so I, have, I usually, you know, connect two, three, two, three or four to the studio. And, um, and what is that case you just showed? Who makes that? Um, RL Soco. I don't know. It's something. Whatever I found on, on RL Soco, it's it's you know some something that I bought on Amazon. And it works great, and it it's my little suitcase that puts that I put my my uh, my studio in. But right. please don't call on me for a couple of minutes. I have some work that I need to do. <laughs> uh, go ahead, uh, Bill. Before I was stopped by the pandemic, I used to travel to Los Angeles a lot, and I would take the train. And so my remote rig was the 16-inch MacBook Pro with my iPad Pro on the side and a dual monitor setup. It was easy to travel with. Uh, I used that, and I used these little 15-inch, uh, actually 14-inch, I think, uh, side panels by Kagoda. Now in my main rig, I have two of them. So I have my 16-inch MacBook Pro and two additional monitors System is driven perfectly, and it works great. Again, I wouldn't travel with all of them, though I could. Uh, rigging them would be a hassle when I got to someplace. But the iPad Pro plus the laptop is enough real estate for me to edit and do whatever else I want. I used to love taking that train north along the coast mm -hmm. and just sitting back and watching the surf roll by and editing. Good, Courtney. Yeah, I'd get a, the 14-inch and then just get you like uh, an external monitor. This is a 15-inch 1080p. And the case ser serves as a stand. You plug it in with a simple USB-C cable uh, that uh, into your MacBook Pro. You have double the screen real estate. You can find a slightly bigger case for your MacBook Pro and slide this in there along with it. You have 
twice as much to look at, and things are a little bit bigger on the 1080p uh, screen. Next question. Next question comes from Josh Kaufman in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And Josh says, what is the typical display aspect ratio of a teleprompter? If it's 16 by 9 or 16 by 10 when tilted 45 degrees, then what is the aspect ratio of the glass? And when might you use tilt other than 45 degrees? Go ahead, Courtney. Uh, you'd usually only use tilt other than 45 degrees. I'll answer that part first. If you're going to be higher or lower than the cameras, the camera's not going to be at your eye level. So if you've got a situation where a lot of times we'll have a, a shot that starts with a camera on a boom arm that's 15 feet up in the air and the person has to be looking up at the camera and reading it. And if that camera's on a wide angle lens, it's not going to be tilted down as much. So then you have to change the angle of the glass so that people can see the full the full image on the teleprompter. And a lot of teleprompter glass is trapezoidal. It's not uh, rectangular. Uh, and most teleprompter monitors that we have are 4x3 are four and not 16x9 because they're used for putting text up. And to maintain uh, eye contact with the text, you don't want it spread out because then you'll see their eye travel left and right, which is a bad thing because then you can tell they're reading. So the narrower the glass, the narrower the monitor, the better. And the less height, of course, the monitor, the better. And uh, the trapezoid is because it's at a 45-degree angle. You need more glass at the top to keep it, keep it out of the frame because it has to be wider at the top than it is the bottom because the bottom half of the glass is underneath the lens. Uh, so it's, it's uh, always out of the shot. But the top half of the glass, because it's out in front of the lens, has to be wider to stay out of the shot. So um, there's a, a calculation you can do, but just, uh, you know, you can get your little uh, ruler out and start moving it in the field of view of the lens you're going to want to use and determine how wide it's got to be at the top and how wide it has to be at the bottom. And you can have a trapezoid cut to that specification. There you go. That's a good answer. <laughs> stay out of the way. All right, we're changing subjects and jumping to our second hour, and we've got a, a special guest, Simon, Simon Passmore here. And I have to admit, I, I just saw uh, Simon tweeted something out. I don't even know how it ended up in, in my in my Twitter feed, other than other people that I knew were like, "Wow, look at this!" And I just I opened up uh, the video and looked at it and saw this incredible composition uh, of in Logic. You know, and, and I think a lot of times I use logic in very basic ways. And sometimes I throw together something really basic with some loops and some other bits and pieces. And uh, when I saw what Simon was building, and, and again, we've, I've seen artists use it all the time to record pieces. So they're like, I recorded this track and I recorded this track and I put these things in. But what I saw there was Simon putting together these incredible MIDI-based, uh, well, Simon can correct me, but, but, but all these MIDI-based compositions that are incredibly complex. And um, I think he's going to show a little bit of it. And I was like, oh, he has to come on. <laughs> I have to, I have to, we, have, we have to learn more about this. So, um, Simon, uh, welcome to the show. Hi, Alex. Thanks very much for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Can you tell us a little bit about your background? How did, you know, what, what, how did you get to here? Sure. I, um, I, I'm a musician and I teach in a school in the UK, a full-time uh, specialist music school in Manchester. And, uh, and what does a work... specialist music school mean? Uh, so here it's uh, students that get academic studies, but alongside that they get um, like specialist music lessons from some of the best teachers in the country or, you know, in the world. And it's for really for students that, you know, uh, are very talented and really committed to doing music. And, right. and uh, they audition. What, what's their age range? 
so the school I work at is kind of between uh, six and seven to 18, 19. Um, hmm. And not all of them go on to do music as a profession. Uh, some of them choose to do science or maths or things like that right. uh, or anything really. But it, yeah, it's just specialist music training at that age. That's fantastic. So, so you teach there and you're, you're classically trained, right? That's right. Yeah. And what do you, what do you, what are the instruments that you play? Uh, so I'm primarily a pianist, uh, mm-hmm. but I also play the organ as well and did right. little bits of, you know, recorder and ukulele in school <laughs> as everyone else does, I think. <laughs> yeah. And, and so how did you, um, how did you get yourself into doing the compositions that you're building now? Uh, so actually I, uh, uh, I was working kind of full-time and freelance until lockdown and then uh, all freelance work just stopped. So I thought I'll have a go at some of these uh, digital programs like Logic. And, and So before, just the, before, before lockdown, you hadn't used uh, Logic mm-hmm. or any other DAW? Not really. I did uh, a bit of Cubase in school, but didn't really understand what it could do properly. Um, and then I'd always done tiny bits of composition, but then just took it really seriously uh, during lockdown and then just got hooked on logic and, and doing these and, and how did you learn logic did you just just start hitting it there mm-hmm. were certain things that you uh um did you, did you certain study aids or did you just just dig into it i uh, just got stuck in straight away i mean I, I joined a few forums and discord servers and um watched a few youtube tutorials for anything i didn't understand but it's fairly straightforward to use and I, i'm only really using the, the the core the core features it has there's plenty of plenty more things to do on it i think Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So you, and, and to, and are the compositions that you're showing and we'll show them here in a second. People are probably wondering what the, what what are they talking about? We'll show them here in a second. But the, uh, but are the compositions that you're, um, that you're showing, those are, these are really there for you to kind of, were they kind of learning material for you to figure out how it works? Yeah, good question. Uh, there's uh, a few kind of what we call mock-ups um, on YouTube, and these are just kind of virtual versions of, uh, you know, normally film music, I think that's where people get into this sort of software. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, they're, they're done for a number of reasons. Sometimes they're done to kind of exercise your your your, your skills and just kind of learn a bit more. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes they're done for kind of audio practice. I mean, there's... Uh, YouTube mock-ups of people perfectly imitating the original Star Wars soundtrack, as in the, the correct frequencies and everything, mm-hmm. to the point where you wouldn't know if it wasn't the, the 70s original recording or not. Right. Um, but the the one I do is just kind of, I, I like doing my own version of the of the music I, I love, and so I just arrange it from scratch, uh, and just it, it was almost like a digital performance rather right. than a mock-up I, I, I'm aiming for anyway. That's great. Um, can you show us um, some of your composition? Yes. Uh, and of course, as they're mock-ups of film music, I'll just do kind of short chunks at a time. Uh, so we get. don't care. I'm sure we'll yeah. get flagged. We're not, we, we don't monetize this thing. And, you know, if, if it gets blocked, it gets blocked. Just just play what you want to play. Don't worry about it. So, that. yeah, if I share my screen here. Hang on. Um, so this is my logic window. I hope you can all see this. I'll make sure. Yeah, we can see. I, I can see it. Oh, oh, yeah, yep, it's, in the, it's in the program. Share computer sound on, up to my screen share for video clip, and turn on original sound, and put it in stereo. Um, hopefully that should work. If I turn the volume down and play a little bit, just yep. test it first. Sounds good. Fantastic. Great. So if I just do the first 10, 15 seconds or so, mm-hmm. and I'll just pop it up a little bit, I think.
So this is just virtual orchestral instruments just put in the right place at the right and what, time. And, and what virtual instruments do you use? Uh, so uh, I, I potentially could show you three projects here, if you like, using yeah. different libraries. Um, yeah, absolutely. This one is just straight orchestral, and there are so many brilliant so, libraries. So when, so when you say straight orchestral, is it yeah. straight this, the stuff that is built into Logic? Uh, actually, no. These are these are these are all third-party okay, libraries, kind of external sample libraries. Um, but straight orchestral is in. There's no need for kind of you know uh, rips, falls, jazz, jazz techniques, growls, flutters. It's just play the notes on the page in a, right. in a kind of classical style. Right, right, right. Um, so there are so many brilliant libraries that do this perfectly. Mm -hmm. uh, everyone has their own taste. Uh, and I just listen to lots of demos and watch lots of walkthroughs, and then. Uh, bought them one at a time, slowly over the course of two years. And and these are and, and um, it is an expensive habit, isn't it? <laughs> it it is, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I wouldn't be able to buy them all in one go, that's for sure. But they're, yeah, yeah, they're yeah. regular the, sales, kind of fifty percent <laughs> plus off. But but these are all electro. When we're listening to what we just listened to, these are all electronic. Uh, instruments, right? There's not it, any samples. It, it, in a way, the, these are all, well, uh, well they are samples, most but. of these are recorded samples, as right. in uh, how these libraries are built. Uh, they, they record instruments playing, yeah. and it's built of loads of tiny audio files, so when you mm -hmm. press a C on your keyboard, you'll hear C of the instrument that was recorded right. in as, as many ways as they offer. But uh, more recently, uh, this new kind of library has been in becoming more popular, the, the modelled version, which is much more about kind of, uh, I'm not a, a real tech expert, so I struggle to describe it, but it's not recorded samples as such, it's more, uh, at least partly, computer-built sounds, mm -hmm. and these give you 100% flexibility, basically. Like, the only one on here is the Brass Library for me, which is Aaron Ventures' Infinite Brass, but there are other modelled brass libraries, like Sample Modelling or Acoustic Sample V-Horns, uh, but with this uh, kind of computer-generated sound, it just gives you ultimate flexibility. Rather than relying on fixed audio files, you can right. make the sound yourself, and you can basically play it however you like. And do you do anything with, uh, you know, the, you know, and are you when you put these in, are you playing them on the keyboard, or are you def how are you defining the the notes? Good question. Um, I uh, everyone does it in different ways. I think. Uh, Lots of people have a MIDI keyboard where they can just, uh, you know, you put the metronome on and play the notes in as if you're playing on a piano. Mm -hmm. um, people that aren't so, uh, so comfortable playing keyboard instruments can draw the notes on down down here on the piano roll. Mm -hmm. um, but I would say that uh, even if you don't play a keyboard instrument, um, you could just put the tempo down and even just play two notes with, with you know, two fingers mm -hmm. and then just change the notes on the piano roll afterwards. So as long as you've got the rhythm down... Um, right. You, you can play anything and then just adjust the notes afterwards. It would, and, would. and if you are good at playing the keyboard, is there an advantage to playing it over putting the notes in because there's a little bit of a imperfection that you add to it that makes it... Do you find that that's important? Yeah, good. That's a very good question. And uh, um, yeah, one that's still being discussed today, I think, uh, whether it adds more realism if you play it in yourself or... It, it, I think for me it's quicker to make it more realistic because you, you play it in a realistic way and you're more likely to be able to do that first or second or third try. Rather mm -hmm. than drawing them on, you have to keep repeating it and hearing it back to see how it sounds. Um, and you'd have to keep adjusting note by note. 
we, we have a band in, in, in our group. <laughs> so we have an actual remote band. It's called the remotes. And, oh, yeah. uh, and they build it. And one of the things that they do when, they're, when, when they were comp- composing it was to put it in as um, the composer, uh, Brian, uh, you know, played a lot of those pieces in or the, arra- right. the person who was arranging it. And it seemed to, it, it, listening to just the raw MIDI versus him playing it was to us like yeah. night and day. Fantastic. Fantastic. Yeah, yeah. There's definitely a, uh, uh, it, 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 I think it just adds a, a tiny bit extra realism yeah. if you can if you can play it in rather than drawing it in. But each to their own and different methods work for different people. How do you get started? Do you start with a certain um, set of instruments? Uh, so it depends on the kind of project, but for orchestral stuff, um, it, it's really like a, a magic trick, uh, these mock-ups, in that it's smoke and mirrors, and what you want to do is... To make it sound realistic, uh, in my experience, what you want to do is to kind of direct people's attention towards what you want them to hear. Mm-hmm. So uh, perhaps if I play the beginning again and uh, ask you what you're most drawn to sound-wise mm-hmm. and see if it worked. Like uh, what, what instrument? I mean, it definitely feels like the horns really. Yeah, you know, exactly. Pop, Brass, right. yeah, horns, trumpets, trombones, all that. Okay. So, the ninety percent of your focus, at least for this section of music, should be on. Yeah, let me stop the music. Um, should be on making the brass sound as best as you possibly can. Uh, mm-hmm. If I played you bits of the woodwind, you'd probably instantly be able to tell that it's virtual. Hang on. It's just, to be honest, it's uh, to save time, it's just copy and paste. Uh, I wouldn't normally do this, but I didn't expect it to pick up so much on Twitter. <laughs> I would have put more, more time into it if I'd known it was being analysed <laughs> later. If it was going to blow um, up, yeah. yeah. Same for the strings. I mean, these sound okay, uh, but you can still tell they're virtual. But it, it doesn't really matter because they're just there to colour and enhance right. what you want the listener to, to, to focus on, which is the brass. So right. if I play the brass on its own, you'll hear that I've put extra detail in. Yeah. So the, and when you I, say I, you've... When you say you've um, put extra detail in, what do you do that's different with the brass than you did with the with the strings? Yeah, uh, so uh, the things I use on Logic are the modulation, which is, if I maybe open the piano roll here, uh, modulation and velocity, and very occasionally other things like uh, expression to change vibrato on an instrument or pitch bend, uh, as I'll use here. Um, and I'll just spend more time on the sections I know people's ear will be drawn to, uh, like here. Um, one thing I find important is to uh, make sure that I use individual instrument patches, as in, instead of trumpet ensemble in one track, it, it should be trumpet one, trumpet two, trumpet three. Mm-hmm. Um, even when they're playing the same notes, you want it to sound like three separate players. So these should mostly be, or at least all kind of individual lines they're more or less doing the same thing uh, right but yeah uh, and just to make it more realistic I'd spend a little bit of time using things like pitch bend for example brass players uh, 
they'll not all three trumpets won't hit the same note exactly on the same frequency but they're all you know world-class musicians that will adapt within milliseconds of hearing um so i've just put a little little change there uh, mm -hmm. i don't know if you can hear it on its own let's see if you can hear the tiny bit of pitch bend It just yeah. ever so slightly changes the tuning, uh, and that's what real players would do. So right. just spending the time to do extra little details like this to enhance the realism uh, that I wouldn't normally do to something that was just in the background. Right, right. And and uh, and the um, how long did it take you to put this together? Uh, probably around tw twenty odd hours for the whole, yeah. uh, you know, fifty seconds of music or whatever it is. It takes <laughs> takes some time, um, uh, but yeah. there's a lot going on in this one. You know, every, every orchestral instrument pretty much is playing. Yeah. Um, so yeah, and That's it was great. just a bit a bit of fun. I probably, like I said, I would have spent longer if I'd known <laughs> if I'd known lots of people were going to see it. But uh, <laughs> yeah. that's a, a lot of us, I work on a lot of events that, that are big commercial events and we think that a lot of times, yeah. like, you know, if this many people are going to watch, probably should have spent more time on that. Yeah. Um, the, uh, uh, if, for also for our panelists, if you have any other questions and also for the folks that are watching, you can go and throw mm -hmm. them in. We've got a couple stacking up, which we'll get to after uh, maybe looking at one more example. Uh, or sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I had uh, an option for kind of, uh, symphonic big band, like mm -hmm. the uh, Incredibles, or maybe just a small jazz ensemble like Monsters Inc. Um, also, if I've just minimised logic there, I was also going to show you how it sounds with no modulation, the brass. That oh, is, yeah, yeah. if you're interested. Mm -hmm. yeah. So this is with all orange lines removed. This is exactly what what you've heard. Compare that with the um, with the version that has the orange lines. Yeah. So yeah, it's absolutely vital to to just take care of the modulation and the velocity before anything else. Really, it's amazing. Um, sorry, the other things I had was uh, maybe Monsters Inc is a kind of small jazz ensemble, and uh, The Incredibles is like symphonic big band. Um, now our our file has when you did that I think it's a sharing thing. <laughs> that, oh yeah, sorry. it just kind of froze. So um, oh yeah, you know, your screen sharing like, is paused. It says uh, yeah. if I click resume share. Oh, it's because it's on the logic window rather than my desktop. Yeah, sorry yeah. about that. No worries. Um, no worries. If I uh, uh, I'll go for Monsters Inc here and see if I can just open this. Ah, open. If I close that. Um, hopefully this should open. Is it still showing my screen? Oh, showing is. the don't save window. Fantastic. Yeah, great. That should be loading. It might take a little bit of time. Okay. Um, so uh, just talking about those kind of libraries again, mm -hmm. uh, if I, hopefully the screen will keep resuming sharing once the window's opened. Um, Monsters, Inc., this, obviously the Pixar film, this is just mm -hmm. the title's music, and this one is... Uh, a small kind of jazz ensemble where the choice of library really, really does make a difference because right. each instrument is exposed on its own. Uh, and so these uh, main so ones... In, so in this case, there's there's just a lot. You're doing um, uh, a lot less instruments, but you're paying attention to all of them in detail. Exactly that, yep. Uh, hopefully you can see this. Yes. If I, if I play a little bit of it, you can hear it as well. 
Is that coming through okay? Yep. It's yes. through great. great. Yeah, so uh, here, the saxophone and the trombone are modelled because there's so many little nuances in, uh, well, in the music in this. Um, the way I, I get around a lot of this is by having multiple tracks for the same instrument, uh, each one with a tiny difference. I should really label them, but I think at the time I did it uh, quickly and just couldn't remember which one did which. Um, uh, things like vibrato being delayed, if there's a sound I want, uh, whether vibrato comes later on the note or instantly. Maybe if I try playing some of this, it might work. Can you hear that? Yep. Yeah. So on that one, the vibrato is instant. On a delayed one, it comes in later. Uh, and so I just hop between tracks depending on how the music goes. If I play a little bit of the... Uh, is this a solo here? Possibly. Hang on. Let's have a quick look. The tune. If I do a little bit of the solo, you'll hear this. So there's kind of tiny little nuances in all those sounds and each one's, well, allocated to different tracks here, mm -hmm. as you can see these regions. Uh, so for the sounds that needed instant, more or less instant vibrato, um, it's just short notes, but it just bends a bit at the end of the note uh, and that's it, then it's the player starting to do vibrato and then coming off the note. Um, uh, and I think that you're, the fact that you come from a traditional background, a classical back, background, you know what they should be doing. Like, you know how those notes are produced. It would be hard for someone that didn't know anything about the instruments to necessarily understand what that would, what the, what the actual performer would be doing. Potentially, yeah. It, it really helps to, you know, be, be working with instruments like this a lot of the time. Um, but, you know, the, you can hear this sort of music anywhere and um, it's just like engineers say about the mixing and mastering side of things, it is really just about using your ears and listening carefully and mm -hmm. um, just making sure your instruments match what you what you hear in your head anyway. Um, uh, I mentioned that libraries are important. Mm -hmm. uh, I've got also here a version of the trombone solo with the orchestral trombones I use for Star Wars, which are also mm -hmm. modelled. Uh, if you'd like to hear the difference just once to show that sometimes the, the, the quality of sound, as in the not the actual quality, but the the, the sound itself of yeah. the library is important. If I just play a bit of the normal trombone solo here. And if I swap that now with the infinite brass trombone which is which i use for the symphonic big band stuff you can make it sound jazzy but if it's on its own the 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 v horns is is slightly better suited i think for just the small ensemble stuff uh if i try playing that now uh, no that's the wrong one it's this Put them so I swap between the two of them as well. Um, uh, to, to be fair, that, that is just me more or less copying and pasting from one instrument to the other, which is never recommended, but um, 
uh, it already sounds great anyway, uh, just, just pasted onto Infinite Brass. But it, for me, it wasn't quite the right sound for this one. Um, I also put a little audio clip here of V-Horns doing the same thing for the orchestral stuff. So the small jazz ensemble doing the Star Wars track, if, you, if, if that's of any interest. Yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely. Didn't hear that one? Okay, if I just solo this out and make sure the volume's down on this... So this is infinite brass to start with, and then V horns take over the tune. They only have two trumpets, so the sound isn't quite as strong. Uh, yeah, it, it sounds sounds good to me, but infinite brass is better suited to that kind of orchestral music, and right. V horns for me is better suited to the small jazz stuff. So that's great. Important in choosing the right ones. No, absolutely. Projects, I think. Absolutely. And, you know, again, I think that I, I find it to be really, um, by the way, Scott Mueller is asking, uh, and I probably should put it in the questions, but but what's the sax library? Oh, uh, acoustic samples, V-horns. I, I do try and uh, label each of these, but sometimes forget. So AS for me is acoustic samples. Oh, got it. Um, okay. There's also uh, SWAM, I think, uh, is that audio, audio modeling? I think it's the company. SWAM saxes are, are very good as well and worth worth listening to. That's great. Yeah, and I it's... um. And I think that what's really fascinating is is when you take on things that you, you know, that that you're re- reproducing. This is how I learned how to do computer graphics was actually to look at yeah. other people's work and then reproduce it as a as an exercise and yeah. um, forcing myself to get as close as I could, um, you know, you know, to that to that process. So it's um it's really uh, really interesting. Um, let's go ahead and let's go ahead and um, we'll come back. You have another one, right? You have one more to show. Uh, yeah, if, I mean, if you like, we'll, it, let's, we'll come back to it. Let's, let's sure. go ahead and jump into some of the questions and then we'll come yeah. back to the last, uh, the last example. So let's I'll go open it up now anyway. So it just it takes a little bit of time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Perfect. So go ahead and go ahead and open it up and we'll, uh, we'll, we'll jump to the question. So let's go to the first question. Douglas Carmichael is up first and Douglas says when creating an album of electronic music, how can you build a theme for an album that can quote, cut through the clutter on the streaming service? What do you think makes a difference there? Is that a question for me? Yeah. Uh, oh, I think this one, uh, this question is more kind of composition based, uh, if I've understood it correctly, or is yeah. this about cutting through sound wise? Just like if you, I think he was, I think he's mostly looking at if you're building an album, what do you, do you have, do you think that there's a certain, um, I know we're not talking about that specifically here, but he's yeah. kind of, as a composer, do you think about certain things for a certain group of songs? Um, I, I've only done scoring to media as a composer so far, um, and uh, it's probably better for someone else on the panel, mm-hmm. this, this kind of question. But I think yeah. uh, as long as you uh, try and be as original as you can, it's great to be influenced by other people, uh, not great to copy them note for note. Um, <laughs> I think there's a famous classical composer, it might have been Stravinsky, that said, um, uh, good artists steal, uh, no, good artists borrow, great artists steal or something. So don't be worried about being a bit influenced by, by the greats. Uh, right. But aim for originality, I think, is my, my And you're so, advice. And most of what you've done is scoring for media. And what, what kind of things have you been doing in that area? Um, so I'm, I'm relatively new to it. I, I, again, I just started in lockdown, but I've done a kind of... Uh, the first, first project was a kind of kids' adventure show mm-hmm. uh, based in Ireland. And the brief for this was trying to make it sound like a kind of William Spielberg 70s type thing and the episodes are set in different places and times uh, it's really sort of about a cardboard box time machine it's a fantastic show uh, called The Imagination Machine uh, but then on the other end of the scale I'm working on a show at the moment which is a kind of true crime 
docudrama series set in New York between the 20s and the 50s. And the brief for this was kind of make it sound more like Herman crossed with kind of noir jazz type stuff, referencing the classic songs of the time. And uh, yeah, v, things like V-horns have come in really handy for that. And and for and for those, are you getting? Do you get the episode or the? And then you just kind of work with it and figure out where you want to put the music, or do they have certain? How do they? How do they bring those requests to you? Uh, it's it's varied project by project for me at the moment. Uh, I kind of I see the cut or, or the edit that they're working on as as it's being edited, and so I kind of watch it through and and see if any scenes I think need scoring. Uh, for this docudrama series, the the idea was building a kind of library of tracks for the various editors to draw from. So I'd be I'd find myself writing things like, um, you know, tense strings, two minutes type thing, or dark slow uh, brass, one minute type thing, and uh, and that's worked really well so far. But there are there is the odds kind of you know if there's a reenactment of a murder or something that that one needs a bit of scoring to picture. Yeah. Uh, whereas Imagination Machine was just seven minutes of, of eight eight minute episodes of just straight through scoring everything, right? Yeah, and and um, and you're doing it all pretty much this way in Logic. Are you are you, is this how you're putting them together? Or are you using other tools? Uh, do, depends on the project. If it's something that needs a lot of careful orchestrating and thought, I'll do it at the piano on on paper, and then transfer to Logic. But if it's something where I'm just you know, trying out new sounds. I'll sit on Logic for a bit and just uh, kind of go through various libraries and try and get inspired by the sounds of different instruments. And do you ever then end up with an, an actual analog band <laughs> or, 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 or a group that puts those back into it? I mean, it seems like such a great way to previs. This is what this is going to sound like. But do you, have you found yourself back into a recording studio to record those? Uh, yes, uh, I, I've, I've been using recording studios for this uh, noir series uh, uh, just because the, the more projects I do kind of I think slightly higher the budget will be hopefully and uh, I'm able to pay live players who at the end of the day will will play will perform the music better than virtual instruments in that they're you know live players um, so I, I, if I can afford to I, I definitely try and use those and it's been good for me as a learning curve anyway to try and mix live players with the virtual instruments and make them sound like they're in the same room. And does that kind of get back to that? You you have the if you have a, a limited budget, you have the live players play the most important parts and then fill in behind them with uh, the more digital versions. Yeah, exactly that. Yeah, I think that's a kind of me- medium budget is a, a selection of live live performers uh, complemented with with virtual orchestra. I mean, it's like Hans Zimmer and and John Williams and uh, people of that caliber can command you know full symphony orchestra plus uh, for their for their projects obviously um, but uh, if, if you're just starting out you're more likely to be using only virtual instruments i think unless you play it yourself yeah absolutely yeah next question next one comes to us from scott mueller in germantown new york and scott says do you get caught in the trap of quote this new sample library is going to make me more creative close quote so i need to buy it right away <laughs> Does that ever come up for you? Yes, I definitely recognise that. I've seen that, seen that a lot. Um, all I'd say is it's it can be it can be addictive, you know, collecting these sample libraries. So you do have to watch out, as you mentioned, Alex. They're they're, they're expensive. Yeah. <laughs> um, just watch the walkthroughs and watch the watch the demos and 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 really choose the library you uh, you, 
you think is best suited to the way that you work and also the one you like the sound of the most. Sometimes there can be a library that comes along that, that is really inspirational and, and, and it is a learning tool more than kind of a tool for you to use. Right. Um, uh, an example of this for me is uh, a company called Teletone Audio, uh, I think based in America. Uh, they've released three kind of synth libraries uh, and the sounds are just amazing and there's things I wouldn't know how to make on my own from scratch. So I've been kind of experimenting with those and it's taught me a lot about synths and electronic music, just working with those. Yeah. Jeffrey, you had a question? Yeah, do you, do you have to worry about copyright on those sound libraries, if, especially if it's something that you produce uh, becomes a commercial production? Uh, it, y yes and no. Most most sample libraries will say these, once you've purchased these, you can use them in any commercial product you like. It's trickier if you're using free ones or kind of free trial downloads. Some of them come with small print saying this is for personal use only. You can't use this in your commercial, yeah, you know, projects. Um, but generally, I think if you've paid for the sample library, it, you can use it however you like. One thing you have to be careful of is just uh, selling the sounds on their own, uh, that's not allowed. And also using loops on their own uh, is also it's slightly dodgy. You need to be careful in that area. Uh, but if you just decorate these loops with, with other instruments, I think, I think you're okay. Next question. Peter Belbin in Houston, Texas, up next. And he says, Simon, could your approach to humanizing the performances be wrapped up into a plug-in that others could apply to groups of the same instrument tracks? Perhaps your research and experience could be parlayed into something others can use. That's a yeah, interesting question. Complicated is, question, yeah. <laughs> yeah, is that, is that basically saying, is there a way for... Um, uh, people that have done the things like the modulation and velocity to to make that as a automated or automatic. Yeah, thing I think that's always the thing to, to try to figure that's out. Like, how can we do this faster? But it's uh... that's a tricky one. Yeah, I think the 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 at the end of the day, it's a long process to learn and to to listen, and it takes time to put this kind of data in. I don't know if there's a quick or easy way to do it, but if there is, please let me know. <laughs> Courtney. Yeah, I was wondering, since you are a keyboard player, do you use a velocity-sensitive keyboard with aftertouch to generate some of the dynamics if you're playing in each individual part uh, by hand, or just are you just going in and tweaking in Logic to create those dynamics later? Really good question. Yeah, um, I've got a semi-weighted keyboard here, um, so it kind of works a bit. Uh, it's it's pretty good. Uh, I'm not quite sure how to get a properly weighted keyboard in on this desk and not have the desk collapse every time I, I, I play a note loudly. Um, uh, but it, there's certainly some tweaking afterwards in the piano roll in the piano roll needed. Just to, if if some notes have just sounded a bit too loud, I just highlight them and just drag the velocity down slightly. But I can get a good 80, 90 percent of it done on this semi-weighted instrument. A good good point. Next question. Robin Cutshaw in Atlanta, Georgia says, do you use headphones while creating? And if so, which do you use? Uh, yes, I use, uh, uh, I think these are Sennheiser. Uh, right. D DT770 Pros mm -hmm. I've got, uh, and I use, I, I think it's Sennheiser. Someone correct me if it's not. Um, yep. And have you um, have you played it all with doing this in Atmos or five dot one, or have you played it all with uh, kind of surround or spatial? Not yet. It's on the list, uh, long term list to learn. Uh, I d haven't been given any work that needed it yet, thank th thankfully. Um, <laughs> but looking forward to learning about that. Yeah, it's it, it's um, something I end up doing a lot of work in, and and uh -huh. uh, but it's when I 
the hardest part we have when we record all of this is that we get kind of nailed to the ground because the mics are there and the orchestra plays together and things are, you know, there's um, a lot of stuff going in and out, you know, of those yeah. mics. Whereas when we see all software, all I can think really quickly is I can put that into, you know, I can put that into a surround and do anything I want with any of those instruments because they're they're not corrupting the other uh, the records of the other instruments. Am I right in thinking that's a whole new ball game to learn 5.1 and surround? You know, it's when you talk to folks about it, 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 it's one of those things. And when we're working with it, there's a lot of things that you can't really, you can't move and have the, so like your bass drum, your, um, your vocals oftentimes are very close to the center, you know, that they sit in there and then we start to, but, but when we talk about some of the other, uh, uh, percussion stuff, we can kind of move that around a little bit, you know, synthesizers get moved around a lot. Um, and, um, and, you know, you first, the first, as with most things that we learn, uh, what I find is the first time someone does it, they get really aggressive and it's all over the place. And then they right. run settles like, like you would with, yeah. Hey, I've got a bunch of filters, you know, <laughs> and it sounds great yeah, the yeah. first time you do it. And then, yeah. and then like a year later, you're like, what was I thinking? You know? And so, yeah. so that's the, that's, that's a yeah. lot of it, but it, um, you know, I have found it to be, I've gotten to work in it a couple, for a couple of years and I don't manage that record. I just listen to them. Um, mm -hmm. But, but I find it to be just um, a game changer, you know, like when you, you, cause you can just build much larger spaces in your mind, you know, with that. Yeah, yeah. 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 Go ahead, Jeffrey. Back to that original question. I think what they're asking is, especially for a live sound engineer, you put on headphones and then you listen to the music. Do you have like a monitor system that you go through or do you go through a different, uh, different sets of headphones when you're uh, finalizing? Uh, it, yes, I know. I don't have monitors. I know that they're recommended. Uh, these headphones do a great job, but I also listen, if I have to, I'll listen on my uh, like earphones. I've got Apple AirPods and also on my phone speaker just to see how it would sound if someone was listening through their phone. And often it's the phone speaker that's the most revealing in terms of balance and, and uh, things I need to change. Also uh, worth listening in mono before, before doing any of that, because that often it reveals a lot about the sound as well that you wouldn't often notice in stereo. Let's go to the next question. Scott Mueller in Germantown, New York. For someone who has his feet in both creating MIDI sample library music and in virtual event production, how can I leverage my skills in both fields better? Uh, I think I, the... We'll go on, Alex. No, go ahead. I was going to I'll give you a minute. You know, what I would say is that that um, there's such a great advantage of being able to build your own music. And so, you know, even in the most rudimentary way, and I am by no means a really good musician, and so I don't try to play anything on the keyboard. I, I noodle about, like, oh, I got a couple notes I want to use or I want to do anything, but that's about all I can do. <laughs> um, and, uh, uh, but I... Um, but I, even with loops, a lot of times I'm doing a production and the client says, hey, can we put a little music under there? Or can we put a little something in the open or whatever? And I can jump into Logic and throw a bunch of loops together that, the, that and the client goes, oh, that sounds good. You know, like, you know, that's, you know, or I, or I grab pieces of things. I'll go into Epidemic Sound, grab pieces of it, add other things to it to make it our own, you know, so to speak. And, um, uh, and I think that that has been, I found to be super useful to have that just in your back pocket that you can build something that's useful. Um, what, do you, what do you think, Simon? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Just trying different sounds. There's plenty of free sounds available. Um, I think a, a really important thing also is to make sure you 
you're doing something that you enjoy because then you learn fastest. Like I, I love the music that I've mocked up, the Pixar music and Star Wars. I think it's, you know, up there and some of the greatest music written in the last century or, or, or more. Um, but if I, uh, have to mock up a piece I find quite boring or music I'm not so keen on, it would definitely take longer and I would learn less because I'd be less enthusiastic about it. So I really try and focus, I, I would suggest focusing on something you really enjoy to start with because it's the first step towards kind of igniting enthusiasm and getting the learning process started. It's funny. We I was at an event where they had Steve Wozniak and he, he evidently for a while, Steve Wozniak was teaching computer programming uh, to uh, high school kids and, and grade school kids. And, and they said, well, what's your, what's your technique? And they were trying to talk about different learning styles. And he goes, I don't pay attention to any of that stuff. You just have to make them, they just have to get excited about learning. Like if they just get yeah. excited about coding, uh, they'll figure it out. <laughs> like yeah. you don't, you don't need, yeah. you know, like they'll get, they'll cut through all of that other stuff. Yeah. You know, That's so. a great point. Yeah. yeah. Uh, next question. Josh Kaufman in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Up next, Simon, how does the broader composition community view electronically produced music like you make? It just a, as another tool to be wielded by an artist, or do you encounter a physical instrument purist mentality? Yeah, another another question that's kind of uh, debated a lot, um, and especially with the kind of, I think we're in the advent of AI, the, obviously people that know more about this than I do, but we're, we're certainly... You know, it's it's getting better and better, uh, and I think some composers and uh, perhaps musicians are starting to worry a bit. Um, uh, but with regards to virtual instruments, uh, how should I put this? Um, they're not they're not intended to replace uh, a, a live orchestra, and I, I, in my opinion, they they never will and never can. Uh, there's something that humans put into the playing that just cannot be replicated virtually. Um, as far as I know, anyway. Um, but they're very useful for, as we mentioned earlier about budgets. If you, if you can't afford to pay, you know, have many tens of thousands for a few weeks of, a few days of recording a symphony orchestra, uh, you, you can do it all virtually a, a lot cheaper. It won't be as good, but it, it'll get the job done if, if it's all you can afford. Um, but I, I, I don't know. I'm not an orchestral player, but I, 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 I I wouldn't want to guess if orchestral players would be worried about virtual instruments on their own or not. Uh, I don't think so. People still go to, you know, pay for, for concert tickets. Um, orchestral music is uh, live players are all the time in, in big soundtracks and scores. Um, I, I don't see them being replaced, uh, in my opinion. Next question. Next one comes to us from Scott Mueller in Germantown, New York again. How do you get connected with people who need a score for media? Word of mouth or do you market yourself at all? Yeah, another, another good question. Uh, uh, so I think the method I used was a little different to, to ones that others have used to get into this business. I went on YouTube and just watched loads of independent short films. And the ones I really liked, I wrote to the makers of them and said, I, I've just started working as a composer. Here's some things I've written. I say, what started working? I've just started uh, of taking composing seriously. I really liked your film you know, whatever it was on YouTube. And I said, I'd love to work together with you in the future if you'd be interested. Uh, here's an example of some of the things I've written. And uh, a few people got back to me and then it just word of mouth from there. That's great. Um, next question. Brian Anderson in Silver Springs, Maryland, who does some of the composition for our Office Hours band stuff. Have you experimented with MIDI MPE or have libraries that leverage MPE? 
I don't know what MPE is, so I probably have to direct this question to, to someone else on the panel. I don't know if I don't. I, th- I think uh, you know, we have to. Um, I think that uh, this is. Um, yeah, I, we're all quickly um, researching it. <laughs> oh, thanks. <laughs> Poly- polyphonic expression. Um, so. Uh, uh, okay, is that like uh, libraries that do things like polyphonic legato or? It says it. You know, it it says uh, MPA is a method of using MIDI uh, that enables multi multi dimensional controllers to control uh, multiple parameters of every note uh, with MPE compatible software. So I think that these are. So I think that what I think what Brian's asking about is there are new. There's that next generation of keyboards mm-hmm. and a lot of instruments where you're moving up and down and back and forth, and and you can control a bunch of parameters yeah. um, while you're playing. Yes, good question. Uh, uh, the first thing that comes to my mind there is the breath controller. Uh, I can't remember the name of the company. Something again with T. Um, There's some really interesting that. keyboards that are that are coming out that are they you know um, that have that uh, that that capacity. It's it, it's got me you know the um, yeah. That's right. Yeah, are these the keyboards where you kind of move your hand to well, b- use you the can move your hand? Also, Roger Lin um, has the Lin instrument. The the, the Lin mm-hmm. instrument um, is another one that that kind of lets you. It's it's a bunch of keys all at the same time. Um, mm-hmm. There's a bunch of you know quite a few different ones to to make the Roly. The R O L I is another yep. one that Brian brought up that yep. that does right. let you kind of move, move through that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah, the, that, those keyboards and the breath controllers, uh, where you kind of, uh, you basically blow the wind and brass instruments as if you're playing them in real life. Um, I would say though that there is a limit to how many controllers you can do. I mean, we've, we've only got two arms and two legs. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. so I think just kind of two hands and, uh, uh, you know, sustain pedal or something on the floor is probably the most I could manage anyway. Now, next question. Next one comes from Scott Mueller in Germantown, New York. Scott says, do you bounce everything down to audio stems so that you can play things back when your MIDI setup may change? What kind of data management do you do for your scores? Uh, do you use cloud service, local network attached storage, or? Uh, two, two really good questions. Uh, firstly, yes, I when, I when I'm doing these project seriously i do bounce everything to audio and then i mix everything after that uh, i didn't do that with star wars like i said i, I should have uh, should have done it properly but i just didn't expect it to get picked up um but yeah if i'm trying to make something as good as i can possibly make it i will use the audio files after i've done the mocking up uh, just to change levels and and mix and master it a bit better than i'd be able to in the project itself uh, could you remind me what the other question was after that sorry yeah it was cloud service or local nas do you use a local network attached storage system uh i use my computer hard drive for sample libraries and i upload uh logic projects and any kind of audio files to the icloud and i also have a backup ssd external ssd drive here just in case just curious how do you know do you roughly know how big your sample library is uh, a, a fair few gigabytes, I think. Possibly, <laughs> possibly nearer a terabyte of yeah. of sample libraries. Lots of them are kind of free, but yeah. uh, the recorded audio sample libraries really, really take up some some storage. Sometimes, I think my percussion library alone is hundred gigabytes plus. I think might be the percussion one. Next question. 
Josh Kaufman, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania is up next from Pittsburgh. Uh, Simon, your compositions are fantastic and hardly distinguishable from the originals. Do you feel digital tools have accelerated music creation, perhaps in a similar way that the computer has accelerated drafting, publishing, and the like? I, I do, yeah. I, I, I hope so anyway. That's part of the, the aim with these mock-ups was to kind of you know, especially with the big band and the jazz ensemble stuff, I hadn't seen it been done before. And with the modelled instruments just sitting there, there's no reason why why people can't be mocking this stuff up. So I, I hoped that it would encourage people to have another think about these libraries and virtual instruments, and and uh, you know, try try it for themselves. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, next question, uh, Scott Mueller in Germantown, New York. What do you expect from MIDI 2.0? which will offer 64 kilobits of information instead of 128, 64,000 bits. Uh, again, I'm not so hot on the technical stuff. That, right, right. I'm not sure that means a lot to me. Yeah. Giffen, have any good help. More goodness. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, uh, you, and you said you had maybe one more to show us? Oh, oh sure, yeah. I mean, I, 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 uh, it's just the, it's the Incredibles from yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Pixar again. Sure, I'll try and share my screen here. Uh, share sound yeah so this is another more straight much smaller than the star wars that, that's right so it's kind of somewhere in between the the jazz ensemble and the full straight orchestral in that this is kind of partly orchestral stuff and uh partly more jazz based instruments and also you have orchestral instruments playing in a jazz way here infinite brass is being a kind of big band slash orchestral brass section. If I play a bit of it, um, this works. Yeah, so this is full brass plus basically saxophones and a piccolo at the top here. Which is really important. It's the only instrument I used from this woodwind library, but it plays a big role here. Um, and by kind of combination of orchestral and jazz stuff, I mean that the saxophone is obviously not a traditional orchestral instrument, uh, but features throughout. Uh, and yet you have strings and orchestral percussion, timpani, <coughs> as well as things like uh, bongos and congas and shakers. Um, uh, were there were the particular parts of this composition that were harder or easier for you to put together? Uh, yes, the saxophone solo here at the end, I play a little bit of that. That was kind of the first time I started using these saxophones uh, properly. I'll, I'll play a bit. So again, like with the other one, I've kind of put it across a few tracks depending on the settings I need for each sound. Um, even in modelled libraries, I'm going to cough, sorry. <coughs> um, some of these sounds don't quite exist yet. I think I had to kind of fake one there. Um, yeah, it, it's not the best fake of it, but this um, is kind of pretending that uh, there's a split note um, same thing at the end, I think. 
Yeah, here it, it sounds kind of kind of like a low squeak, if that makes sense. It's that note there that I've had to kind of manually put put that note in, rather than it being a, a specific set sound. If I take it out, you hear the difference, and then back in. It just sounds like a kind of low squeak, which right. uh, you know jazz players might use for expression. Um, but that that preset sound doesn't exist yet, so you can kind of fake it by adding other notes and things like that uh, on the other instruments. So just playing their kind of orchestral roles. <clears throat> and how long did this take you to put together? Uh, much quicker than than the other ones, to be honest. Um, I don't know, probably somewhere under twenty hours. The the bit that took longest was the saxophone solo. Right. Um, and. Uh, the tempo didn't need to change so much in this because the kind of shakers are playing throughout. Uh, whereas in Star Wars, the tempo should well it changes all the time uh, as live musicians would. No, that's one of the first things I notice about uh, mock-ups. Really, is if people don't change the tempo, you know straight away. Uh, like no orchestral, no orchestra in the world plays perfectly metronomically in time. And even if they could, they they wouldn't want to. Uh, so I make a habit of kind of changing tempo even by one notch just every few bars uh, you wouldn't notice the tempo changing but you'll feel that it it isn't just static uh, yeah i think but, that it's uh, we talk a lot about in production about the difference between what you notice and what you can feel you know because yeah. your your lower brain is pretty good at feeling things <laughs> you know, like it, it knows and, it, and as soon as it says it's not real or it doesn't like it it it's hard to get back to there, you know. That's so really, yeah, that's great that that works in other fields as well. It, it really, yeah. it really does matter. The, yeah. uh, next question. I put in this one from San Diego. Simon, looking back, did the pandemic lockdown contribute to where you are now as a creator? Do you f expect that you'd be where you are today without the disruption of your daily schedule? Um, I've never thought about it like that, but yes, that's absolutely right. Uh, I wouldn't be doing this if it, if I wasn't at home, having lost all the self-employed work. Um, so, yeah, it's, it almost sounds horrible to say it was a positive of that, but <laughs> I guess if there is one, yeah, if it's absolutely. a positive. Yeah, absolutely. Next question. Next one comes from Josh Kaufman in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Simon, what are the advantages of going into digital music from a traditional music background? How about the other way around for beginners? Will the low barrier to entry inspire more people to seek out traditional music careers or creations? Uh, I, I hope so, to both of those. Um, particularly if, you've, if you're starting on these digital audio workstations, the DAWs, uh, hopefully that will inspire you to take up an instrument. I have a, um, there's a composer online, I know, I think Ben Elliott, who buys loads of these kind of instruments from all over the world and just finds a way to make them work in his projects and records them in his studio, and uh, it's fantastic. Um, and hopefully people that are using virtual instruments will go, oh, I'd like to play one of these for myself and, and take them up. Um, and certainly the other way around, uh, it helps if you have already played instruments to then go to virtual instruments and for a kind of performing musician, a classical musician like me, it's a, a dream to have an orchestra at your fingertips. Uh, it's just a, amazing software, whether you use it for work or just for, for fun. It, it's incredible. The thought that you can just program orchestral music and it sounds more or less like an orchestra with the quality of today's samples. Yeah, I think that I, my, my, one of my larger regrets was not learning how to play the piano. And my, my, my grandmother is an exceptional one. She's trying to give me lessons, and I tried. Yeah. And I was like, oh, I don't know. You know I just couldn't, couldn't settle down enough to, to learn how to play. <laughs> and, um, 
And we even had a piano in the house. <laughs> I had ah. no, no excuse not to do it. That's uh, a great I, skill to great It skill is an incredible, especially now with synths. Um, you know, it just seems like an incredible superpower to be able to sit down and I want to play this, I want to play that. Um, is a, and I think that we, it, it's harder. I think in a lot of ways, it's, we don't see as many kids learning how to play an instrument. And I think that, I think our pop music, not, not as an old man, but I think our pop music suffers a little sometimes without like, you know, you know, really, really good uh, artists with a lot of practice and skill that came mm -hmm. with, with a lot of that. Um, yeah. so, what's, so what's next? What are you, what are you, uh, what are you working on next? Any, any previews? Um, uh, well, I, I kind of did a sequel to the Star Wars mock-up. Uh, I think the first one reached over 100,000 people on Twitter. Yeah. Uh, the next one's a few hundred maybe. So I think the, the enthusiasm for it died down. But, but my enthusiasm for it hasn't. And I'm looking forward to doing the third one from Return of the Jedi later in the year. Uh, I'm teaming up with... Uh, a composer called Dominic Sewell who breaks down the Star Wars music from a classical analysis point of view and for those that are interested in that it's an amazing amazing kind of tutorial almost from him and what's and so his we're name gonna again? do uh, Dominic Sewell mm -hmm. uh, yeah he's got a YouTube channel uh, kind of just just working through the Star Wars music really and just explaining why it's so great um, I, I, uh, I, yeah. I think that the original Star Wars touched something that was super deep that even even the i worked on episode one so one one of the prequels and um and i felt like if i had just taken that whole that whole movie and replaced it with the original um score it would it would have sold 50 percent more tickets <laughs> so, <laughs> and, and it was the same composer you know like you know it just yeah, it yeah. just it, it, there's something about it that was uh that was magical um it's extraordinary, isn't it? Yeah, I think um, I, I need to know more about it, really. But uh, as I understand it, at the time, uh, kind of classic Hollywood orchestral scores weren't so fashionable. Mm -hmm. I think uh, scores then were tended to lean more towards synthesized stuff and kind of pop right. stuff. Uh, if you think of other seventies films, and imagine how their soundtracks go, uh, and then co along comes kind of John Williams and just you know blows this out of out of the water and, and just writes the most amazing classic orchestral scores and i think he really is responsible for reigniting this kind of passion yeah. for it today no absolutely uh, uh one more question comes to us from brian anderson again in silver springs maryland can you comment on listening deeply to the original to be able to produce a good replica uh Yes, there are. Uh, I think I said at the start there are people that do this sort of thing just for practice in, uh, or practicing their kind of audio production skills on these uh, software programs. Um, I'm more score based, so I, I own a copy of the Star Wars score, uh, and I just worked through and played everything in from the paper rather than copying any audio recordings. Interestingly, SoundCloud and YouTube still recognise this. Uh, as as Star Wars, that there, there's a copyright strike on all the mock-ups I've done, um, and e even though they're from the score, they're not from from audio. YouTube still recognises the music and SoundCloud. So, yeah, um. <laughs> not that we're all bitter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, uh, Simon, thank you so much for your time. Uh, just really, really inspiring. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Yeah, really Really glad to have you there, and and uh, we can't wait. We might, when you have a couple more, we might bring you back on and have you break them down a little bit for us and, and show us if, if you're willing to. Gladly, gladly. 
Excellent. Excellent. All right. Great. Well, thanks so much. And thanks to our producers who asked all the great questions, kept this all rolling forward. Uh, thanks to the panelists, of course. We can't do this without you. And, uh, and thanks to the incredible team on the back end that is, um, that is producing this show every single day, both in R&D and research and prep and, and uh, planning and, and then the actual live production of this show every day. It takes typically 20, 30 people <laughs> to get this off the ground every single day. Volunteers from all over the world. We really appreciate your work. All right, let's go ahead and jump into After Hours. Simon, that was an exceptional day. Thank you so much. Oh, I learned a lot. You're like saying, Simon, play us out. <laughs> <laughs> now it makes me just want to spend the day in logic. I don't, I don't have time for that today, but I, I can dream. I can dream. Colin sick. Yeah, exactly. Uh, uh, uh. Problem calling it sick is deadlines. <laughs> deadlines don't care if you're sick or not. So they, they, just get, they just get meaner. So, so I'll do it for you then. I'm calling in sick. There you go. Call in sick. And, and uh, go make us a great score. Make okay. us a score of something. I will score something. There you go. Or I'll scorch something. Something like that. <laughs>